Every day, we rely on food, fuel, and fiber. But how much do you know about these industries we depend on? In this podcast, we dive deep into the production and processes of these everyday essentials. This is Field Points, an original podcast production from Siri Solutions. You're listening to the Field Points Podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Seiger. Today, we will be sharing the second part of our conversation with Troy Jenkins and Jessica Thurman, focusing on agronomy and how the 2023 growing season is shaping up. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about stand establishments across crops and really taking a deep dive into crop nutrition. Now today, alongside my co-host, Phil Healy, we will be discussing weed control, insects, and diseases, along with some other July and August cropping considerations. So we're going to jump right in and start talking about what we have seen out of weed control and the performance of our herbicides this growing season. So let's talk a little bit about um, what's happened with our pre-products on corn, uh, soybeans. No rain, no activation, a lot of grass and a lot of broadleaf weeds are breaking, they're coming up. They can get reactivated for some broadleaf control. There is some what we call reach back for the grass issues, it's more or less over. Post-emergent grass herbicides are going to have to be applied in corn. But normally in soybean, that's a normal system. We do that anyway, where we spray post-emergence for grass and broadleaves and soybean. So that's nothing really out of the ordinary. But for corn, a lot of growers are keying up right now and, and spraying a lot of materials to control the escaped grasses and broadleaf weeds and corn. They're very frustrated with what's going on, but it's water-related. So for the most part, if you take a look at the post-emergent labels, first of all, today is the last day for all dicamba applications in the state of Indiana. We cannot spray dicamba in, in any crop after today, uh, June 20th. The labels, for the most part, will tell you that we're at between V8 and V10, up to 36-inch corn at maximum height on most products. There are some glyphosates that will let you go up to 48 inches with drops. But for the most part, broadleaf control, this needs to be wrapped up now because the height of the corn, and once you get above V8, V10, you stand a chance of really causing problems reproductively in the corn crop. Brought something up is uh, getting wrapped up now on the spring, so lots of conversations about impact or Armazon, mm-hmm. and I'm already seeing bean fields right now from last year where they applied late and now their beans are not growing because of chemical carryover. So you would touch on not only the, the growth stage of the crop, but also the chemistry side. Of, you know, we talked about the sins, so even right now, it's creating sins for next year if we don't get moisture. Yeah, Jessica and I had a conversation about this just an hour ago. And so go ahead, Jessica, and touch on what, what we've been talking about on carryovers. Yeah, so this year, I would say, for me personally, it's the worst year I've seen herbicide carryover from the previous year on those soybean fields. A lot of those growers last year, you know, later planting, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of guys planted later last year and with that um, needs a later spray application and if you read the label a lot of those have a 10 or 10 and a half month crop rotation to get into soybeans and so when you really start getting close to that time frame then you know especially in your lighter soils you definitely will see the herbicide carry over and what we're talking about mainly is for the HPPBs that we've seen on soybean damage um, so beans you know they might come out of the ground maybe they're not but if they're coming out of the ground they start growing and then all of a sudden they turn white and that's herbicide carry over from those and what scares me about this is that we're set up in the same scenario or even worse than last year. The degradation of a herbicide, especially these HPPDs and stuff, really the time clock really begins to work from the day of application when they get rained on. 
And you got to remember that when you don't get water on them, it really pushes that breakdown of that product. And then as you don't get rain throughout the year, you don't get degradation. And so I expect there could be a worse problem next year than there is this year with the carryovers of these products. It's, it's kind of scary that you can have that. But it's funny you should mention that because if you look at the label, two products, Armazon and Impact, both exact same product. One of them has got a label all the way up to almost tassel, and the other one stops at V8. So it's the craziest label I've ever read. I don't know why it does that. So, But there is definitely a problem. We, I've seen it for a number of years. I've seen it where we've sprayed a lot of Impact or Armazon in, in uh, seed corn production and seen it show up in beans the next year. So it's a real thing. Because of these carryover concerns, I asked Troy if there is a way growers can pivot away from the HPPD chemistry at this point in the season. No, there's plenty of other options they can use as far as, you know, if they're, if they're working in, a, in corn and they're looking at uh, making applications or getting late in the year like this, there's some products that like a, a product called Moxie or Maestro that is a goes all the way up to tassel that they could use as an alternative um, application. Uh, there are some other products that can be used too that uh, are alternative sources along with glyphosate that they could be doing to clean up the problems that they've got. Now we're going to shift gears and talk about weed control in soybeans. We'll talk first about the enlist system that we have. There are an E3 bean and there's rounded to extend or extend flex type of systems. Those extend flex um, systems are over with now for the year. They, they ended up on uh, June 12th, I believe it was. But the E3 system, which is to use an enlist glyphosate treatment with a, a Liberty, that's still a really good system. It gives farmers plenty of flexibility when they look at tall water hamper, palmer amaranth, and other weeds that they're seeing as problem weeds with alternative recommendations with Liberty if they're an E3 bean, using Liberty and using enlist combinations, using post-convergent grass products like Colethodem or Section 3, and then glyphosate combinations for those that have the E3 system. Now, if you're in a plenish bean system, which is only a glyphosate, that's a little bit different. You're limited on some of your choices. Jessica will speak to that on the plenish system. Yeah, especially this year. So a lot of guys are planting plenish, you know, they started with a clean field, whether that was a burn down or tillage application. And then, you know, a lot of the guys also put a pre-herbicide out there as well, you know, just trying to get the weeds under control before those beans can come up and before they can be. The problem is, it's again, lack of moisture, right? That's the theme of this whole podcast and this whole season. The issue with that is that depending on the planting date, depending on the spraying application, there might not have been enough moisture to activate those residuals. So a lot of these plenish bean fields, you know, we might see some weed escapes coming through, and that's when we start to see some problems. Now, luckily, we still have some time. I don't think a lot of guys have yet put the Flexstar and Roundup down, but once they do that, they don't really have a lot of options except for, you know, your burners, your Ultra Blazer, your Cobra, those herbicides for Roundup beans. Luckily, again, like Troy mentioned, E3 beans, you're safe. you got other options you can add into the tank. But for the plenish soybeans, you are limited. Exactly. The amaranth family of weeds is from the, uh, the arid west. Okay, it's a, it's a hot, dry soil weed. And you talk about pig weeds, you talk about tall water hemp, palmer amaranth, spiny amaranth, uh, smooth amaranth, all these pig weeds species, they love hot, dry soils. And they come 
gangbusters. Now we're going to transition from weeds to insects, and Troy will kick us off by sharing what he has seen so far in corn. So let me speak to uh, an early season insect that we that I saw that was kind of interesting. You know, we keep talking about how it's cool, that cool and, and relatively dry, right? R real dry. We saw some needle nematodes this year, and the remedy for a needle nematode in corn is to have it get extremely hot and extremely dry. Because when it gets extremely hot, they can't take the heat. They got to go back down. So that's one of the things that we hope happens that you can get them to go back down. And then once they go back down, they don't come back up. And then you get some rain and resolve some of the problems with drought. But that's the one of the insects that we saw. In wheat, we saw some aphids this year that were pretty heavy, actually, in some of them. We've seen, and still got, still got a report this morning of armyworm. What other insects do we want to talk about? I had Asiatic garden beetles in the northwest part of the state. Oh, yeah. Work. And I had a feeling it was coming as dry as it was, but it seems like that northwest part of the state there, Asiatic garden beetles, like that sandier soil, and we've had some issues with this spring with, uh, with those. They're a real problem. Asiatic garden beetles are look like a white grub, and they're teeny tiny. They're real small, and they're very aggressive. They'll bite your finger. Okay, Yeah, they're very aggressive. You can tell them the difference between them and a white grub is, is they have a, like a pus sack under their jowls, a little yellow ball. But they can actually um, eat the roots off of a corn plant. I've actually witnessed a cornfield that was at 5,000 plants to the acre left after Asiatic garden beetle. And the problem is, is that there's not a lot, really, there's, there's no really good labeled soil insecticides for Asiatic garden beetle. Even, even the inferral products aren't great. So that's a real problem. I asked Troy if these pests are usually a problem or if they came about because of the specific growing environment we've had. No, it was called a ship that came into Port Huron, Michigan, carrying ornamental shrubs 20, 25 years ago with Asiatic garden beetle in it that offloaded. They came out of Detroit and came across the Warsaw Moraine and came across. They're in Ohio, too. They're, that's how they came. They came from Asia. I want you to imagine what a Japanese beetle is. They are the same life cycle as a Japanese beetle. Egg larva, pupa, adult. Okay? So right now, matter of fact, I was in a field just this last three, four days ago. I saw what I think was Asiatic garden beetle chafers because they look like miniature Japanese beetles. They're smaller. But I, and I'm pretty sure that's what they were. They're flying all over the place out there. Would the tricepta or any of the, would they pick that up? No. Next, we asked Troy and Jessica if there's anything that growers should be looking for here in the next couple of weeks. From an insect standpoint, yes, there is. In soybean, if it stays like it is, hot and dry, we need to be watching for spider mites. They could become a real issue. A lot of people don't realize that spider mites are really contingent on moisture. And moisture feeds a fungi that grows on the um, soybean leaf that basically kills spider mites. So when it gets hot and dry, the fungi goes away and the spider mites come in and suck the sap out of the leaves. And what basically makes them die without a treatment on them is to get water and get the fungi going, which then again kills the spider mite. So it's a neat system. And that's why it's so prevalent in hot, dry soils is because the fungi on the soybean leaves dries off. And it's really bad if you look along gravel roads where you put the gravel, you put the dust on the leaves and it sucks all the moisture out of the leaves along the side of a gravel road. Especially if people are mowing the roadsides right now. Once they mow the roadsides and they move into the soybean field from the roadside. Yeah, spider mites like to hide in tall, grassy areas, mm -hmm. so waterways, roadsides, definitely be on the lookout. Mm -hmm. And we've lost our best chemistry, insecticide I should say, 
Correct. Uh, so that has been pulled for control of spider mites. We still have some options, but they're not as good as what we had before. Chlorpyrifos was the name of the product that people know by the name of Laura's band. Really good. And we lost it. The EPA took it off. And then, of course, Jessica might speak to the corn rootworm. Yeah, so corn rootworm. Insects in general this year, I feel like, are going to be an issue, especially approaching later on in the season. Just because this winter, you know, we didn't get a huge hard freeze this winter. So we have a lot of insects overwintering. We have a lot of these random pop-up showers that are blowing up from the south that can always blow up some insects as well. So I think this season in general, just be on the lookout for some insects because I think we're going to see a whole variety of different insects. We had an early training for some of the new sellers in Region 3 last week at Crop 63. and mm -hmm. We were talking about, you know, what things do we go through? And I said, I think we should dig and float corn roots and look for corn rootworm. And Jeff Nagel and myself and, and Chad Cass were, were talking about that, that piece. And so before we started it, we said, anybody ever done this? There wasn't one person that had ever, like, because we've been so long with smart stacks, corn and our cyclical population of, of rootworm has been so low that anybody, I mean, essentially since 2010, 12, it hasn't been an issue. So when we started doing that, and of course, rootworm larvae started floating up to the top of the, to the water, uh -huh. and they were blown away like, this is amazing. And we're like, holy cow, we have rootworm larvae coming up to the surface here. Uh, so then we were able to look at root feeding and what the injury looks like. And so it was a great training opportunity. We didn't know at the time, we're like, are we going to float anything or not? Odds were not in our favor that we were going to float anything because uh, our counts have been low. But to Jessica's point, it's been dry. We had a mild winter. We haven't had gully washer rains that drowned out rootworm larvae. And the first ones that we stuck in the five-gallon bucket of water, we had rootworm larvae that came up to the surface. We were in a field last year up in Coldwater, Michigan. Jessica and myself, we were in this field together, uh, pulling out a probe or doing something. Pulling out the probe, wasn't it? And it was loaded with corn rootworm. And, of course, she's the little master when it comes to identifying the difference between western and southern corn rootworm beetles. She, oh, look at that. <laughs> there was western and northern in the same yeah. field, just saying. <laughs> she could identify the difference between the two, so it was kind of interesting. But we, we were real surprised. We never expected to see... A population that heavy in the field, either one of us, because typically you don't see it now with the traits. Or to that extent. Yeah. You might see one every now and then, but mm -hmm. those like swarming like flies almost. Yeah, there's, there's uh, other than being aware of uh, a possibility of a variant, which the variant populations, which means they've lost, we've lost the tolerance out of the BT trait in the corn plant to kill that corn rootworm. There's some variants over in the west side of the state, but for the most part, there's not a lot of, according to Purdue even, there's not a lot of variants and there's not a lot of threat at this point, but there are some pockets on the west side. I know where there's some, and I've seen them over in Francisville in a couple fields that had some variants in them that continuous corn every year, corn, the trait got washed out and got washed out. That 114 corridor seems to be a hot spot uh, from Francisville through Rensselaer out. It's just, um, it's a soil type. There's a lot of corn on corn in that area. Uh, so most of those people are all smart stacks now. So before they were doing double pros, counts are high enough now. But series, I know, typically puts traps out just to keep an idea of, are we starting to see more showing up? I mean, if we put traps out, we don't catch anything at all. It tells us one thing. But if we start to see numbers increasing, then we can start to pay more attention, start floating roots and doing other pieces 
to make that agronomic decision of do we need to start adding insecticide back in when we plant or do we need to move to smart stacks to protect against this. One other real quick pest discuss would be the western bean cutworm issue. Every year that kind of floats up and down depending on where you're at and how it's moved across. But I can tell you, I go all, all the way, I go up into Michigan and this thing has moved from the west to the east and it's probably moved into Ohio now too. But it's really gotten probably worse up in my Michigan areas on western bean cutworm than it is here. And they say the reason is, is because there's more natural predators that develop to take them out, more diseases for uh, to infect them and more basically beneficial insects maybe that are working on them. But something to always keep an eye on. We put out traps. Jesse's got a trap. I've got a trap. There's a number of us that trap across the state of Indiana. It's listed in the Purdue Pest Bulletin that they have been published every week on the counts that we have so far. I've caught none. I don't know how yeah. One last pest for soybeans is bean leaf beetle. We did see some bean leaf beetle early on this spring. Um, currently they are mating and have, getting ready for the next generation, but the second generation will come in July and August. So just be on the lookout for those beetles. Um, they will come and not only do they defoliate the leaves, but they also like to feed on the pods as well. So they can be destructive. So also keep an eye out. And they transmit viruses. So that's a problem in soybean. It basically deforms the pod and deforms the bean in the pod. It makes it shrivel up and turn into a deformed, very unusable soybean. Next, Troy walks us through what the thresholds are for managing these pests. It's a good question. So like early in the year, the spring here when we had them, shoot, we could go up and have huge numbers, huge numbers of, of bean leaf beetle. But if we have feeding in the soybean crop of 10 to 15 percent, we need to be spraying for bean leaf beetle. And for the most part, with our holistic approaches to soybean management, where we spray when we're at our late R2 to R3 stage with fungicides and insecticides, we do a pretty nice job of taking most of those out in that application. And it's an excellent, excellent application for both disease and fungal control and plant health, all three. You know, so. Now we are going to transition to talking about what crop diseases we should be keeping an eye out for. Let's talk about corn diseases at this point. So if you look at early on, we really didn't even have hardly any anthracnose down in the bottom part of the canopy, which is the major disease we see. We have had very minimal amount of that. And then we get into what I will call the period in which we get into the foliar diseases that start moving up the canopy into the top part of the canopy as you get closer to, to tassel emergent. Northern corn leaf, white gray leaf spot, probably not going to be a big deal. Heat, dry, does not propagate the the cycle of reproduction of the, that diseases. So not a big deal. The one I'll speak on that we always have to keep an eye out for is tar spot. We just don't know what can happen with relative humidities and rain events. If we get into a rainy period, especially this next week, that could get the spores going down in the soils and get them going. So last year, we never really got rains until almost the 4th of July. So that kept tar spot spores at bay and they didn't come in until late, late in the season. We're set up for the same thing at this point, unless this thing flips, the light switch flips next week and it starts raining. Then the tar spot spores can start reproducing and moving up, and then we have to be very, very mindful of that and watching for that because that'll devastate a crop. It's a good reminder just to remember the three components of disease. Um, so you have the host, which is your crop. You have the environment, which is really, really important, especially in this year. So since it has been drier conditions, we don't have that host or that perfect environment for, the, for most diseases. However, again, like Troy mentioned, if it flip up a switch and if the water turns on, then we're going to be in big trouble and we need to keep an eye out for a lot of diseases. However, if it stays dry, then maybe we won't have to worry about disease as much this year. 
But that doesn't mean that fungicides aren't as important because yeah. fungicides have a lot of other benefits, including plant health benefits um, to decrease photorespiration. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting when you talk about fungicides, you can't hardly lose with them. I'll tell you why. If you got diseases, you need a fungicide. If you got heat and dry, you need a fungicide because it reduces respiration. And it allows the plant to basically calm down during the heat of the night, calm down, don't burn so much of my energy, better utilize my energy, and withstand the stresses that they're incurring. So, like I say, you almost can't lose. You win if there's fungi from water, and you win if it's dry. <laughs> Anything you want to add to that, Phil? No, I mean, I've seen the, the same thing is a lot of times when it turns off hot and dry, like right now we still have yield potential. It's dry to Troy's point. We were pretty close to the same boat last year, and a lot of people had the best crop they ever had. That fungicide piece, what it does to the corn plant uh, is somewhat miraculous. And fungicides have continually gotten better and better and better. So we continually see a bigger and bigger response. To the fungicide. When we look at general overall fungicide application, we look at BT to R1, which is tassel. Um, R1 looks kind of funny. That I, I almost get rid of the BT um, ID anymore. It's R1 because corn is ta basically sending out silks before it tassels today. And so let's talk about R1, which is silking. R1 to R2 stage, some people call it brown silk, but R1 to R2 stage is when a lot of people want to make applications. And it is a great time to do that, okay? Especially if you're seeing gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf like creeping up the canopy. Yeah, it's time to look at that R1 stage of growth, okay? But I would just say this, being cautious, because a lot of this is aerially applied and we don't know whether or not the plant can get there timely. Okay, that's a big deal. But if I was farming today and I could get over my corn myself, had a way to do it with a high clearance spray or whatever, and I didn't see diseases coming into my canopy at R1, and no tar spot present at that point, I would wait and delay my fungicide application until probably late R2 would be as long as I would go, which would be basically, you're talking blister stage to milk stage on corn. And then I would I would cut it loose. I'd make my application. And it wouldn't be at that point conditionally, oh, should I or shouldn't I? No, it would be, I'm going to make the application now because it's late enough where I can get the benefit out of it to where I can really help it with the plant health aspect and if the disease comes. Growers should be asking themselves when they should be applying fungicide, not if. Right. They should focus on the when. And again, that depends on the disease type of year. If you see tar spot, pull the trigger as soon as you see it. However, if you can wait, wait till the end of R2. And if you're not, if you're unsure and you're one of those growers that says, I'm not going to play the game, I want to make sure I get my fungicide on, because if this thing rips loose and the aerial applicators are all inundated with everybody wanting to go, I'm going to have my schedule. I'm going to schedule it to go with R1. Schedule it to be, just go ahead. Now Troy and Jessica cover the soybean diseases that growers should be on the lookout for. So there's really only a couple of diseases in soybeans that you can really talk about. The one, the one would be septoria brown spot. It's in every soybean crop. Every year down in the lower part of the canopy, blah, blah, forget about it. It's not a big deal, okay? And then there's a disease that's called bacterial leaf blight that a lot of times you'll see in heavy dews, high humidity scenarios. It'll take on a lesion that's brown in the leaf and then it looks like somebody ripped holes in the leaves, okay? It's very, it's very jagged and ripped and shredded. It's a bacterial disease. There's really nothing you can do for that. And then you have two other diseases that kind of go hand in hand, which would be um, frog eye leaf spot and Sucospora, which we don't see Sucospora at all, but we see frog eye and it comes up from the south. There's a lot of associated fungicide resistance to Sucospora. 
with different formulations. So that's why a lot of times we'll look at multimode action fungicide treatments for frog eye. Frog eye is brought on by high relative humidities, heavy dews, but it's brought on by, was there frog eye, that disease Cercospora, it's a different variety of Cercospora that was in the seed, or is it blowing up from the south? And that's really what spreads, and that's the diseases that we really face for the most part in soybean, or frog eye and the, and the uh, septoria and the bacterial leaf blight. That we can spray for. That we can spray for. SDS, so you know, we talked about sins of the, on the corn side. So wet planting, compaction, speak to the, the SDS for that side that could potentially be showing up here before long. Sudden death syndrome comes in during, like Phil said, cold, wet planting conditions. Usually that disease actually comes in within 72 hours of planting. And so you don't see anything until later on in the season. So it's wild that this disease infects the plant early on within 72 hours of seed being planted and doesn't show up until basically pod, when you start seeing pods. Um, so this disease, like its name, it suddenly dies basically. So the leaves just turn kind of this brown, yellow, tan color and kind of just slowly senesces and slowly dries out for the season. Another direct link to SDS is soybean cyst nematodes. And this year we have seen a lot of soybean cyst nematodes. I know Troy has especially seen it in his mm -hmm. area, definitely on those sandier soils. It might be an invisible pest, however, they're still present and they're mm -hmm. definitely detrimental in a lot of soybean fields in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, so what happens with the sudden death syndrome, Jessica's done a nice job explaining how that they affect the plant within the first 72 hours, which is really interesting because the disease will basically go inside of plant cells, the xylem and the phloem in the, inside the plant. And if it gets inside, what it does is it stays in there, latent, it just lays in there. And then when we get into late season, this poison is injected. It's injected into what would be like the vascular system or the movement of the plant sugars. This poison and it goes up to the leaves and it basically poisons the leaves and that's why they turn brown and fall off. What's interesting is you can have sudden death syndrome infect a plant after 72 hours and it still infects the plant, but it won't make it across the cell membranes in it. So you won't necessarily always see it in the leaves on the top of the plant. It's a poisonous injection. It's, but, but it can still be in the plant as, as Fusarium virgiliforme is the name of the disease that you'll see it. And uh, so it's kind of interesting that, that how it can come in after the first 72 hours and it's maybe not so detrimental, but if it comes in in that first 72 hours, it's a problem. And you said it comes in through soybean cyst nematodes. It's related. Yeah, they create, they can create a vector a lot of times for that to come back into the plant. The, the, the nematode <laughs> themselves are, are a thin, uh, like hair-like structure, but the females lay basically egg sacs on the roots that are little lime-shaped balls the size of a head of an ink pen. That's how small they are. They're not like a, they're not like a nodule that's the size of a, a pea, okay? These are teeny tiny white dots or yellow dots, and that's the, that's the nematode with uh, the egg mass hitched, that's, and that's how I, know, I see them, is by the egg masses. I saw I was in a field a couple weeks ago that was just unbelievable. It looked like the roots look like Christmas trees with little Christmas ornaments hanging on them, and that's how many nematodes, um, egg masses were on there. So what do they do? So what happens is, is that, that the nematode burrows its head into the root system, and she feeds off of the water and nutrition, and she basically sucks the plant dead. And these things go through a life cycle of about every three weeks where the eggs that are released regenerate into more nematodes every three weeks. 
So it's kind of interesting. I can look at a plant today and see them uh, yellow or orange on, or lime yellow on the plant and go back in a week and, and dig the same area, same roots, and I can't see them because the eggs have all dried up. They've all, they're all mature and they've fallen off. So you can go through a cycle where you can see them and then not see them, see them and not see them in a field. So then what does the grower do? So the grower tries to use uh, resistant soybean and they need to try to pick up on whether or not it's a PI88788 type resistance or if it's a peaking resistance. And they really need to know which one they're dealing with because there is a difference in resistance. And what happens with nematodes is there's a whole bunch of races. They're numbered races, one to 14, something like that. And you'll get these varietal race resistances. And if you don't have the right resistant soybean, you'll get no expression at all. They'll be just as susceptible if it's the wrong soybean variety for the race. That's about all you can do. Maybe use some seed treatments that might help. How do they find out what race they have or resistance? Great question. You send them in, you could you uh, pull a sample and you send them in. Send them into Michigan State, you can send them into Purdue, and they'll tell you, I think they'll only do counts, but race, I think you gotta send them to Missouri for race. I think it's, it's Missouri. It's not, they don't race them at Purdue. And well, I they can count them at Purdue. They do, they count them, but they don't race them. It's, it's tough. I mean, it really is. It's, there's not much you can do if you got them really bad. On the Since seed side, different soybean varieties us, have different uh, resistance yeah, to so, these races. So if they know I what, asked what how growers is. can know which variety would be best suited for their field. Yeah, if they, if they know what the race is, just list it in the seed guide what the resistance is. To Troy's point, but if we need PI88788 or Peking, um, you know, kind of the joke in the industry historically has been Peking is highly resistant to cyst. It's also highly resistant to yield. <laughs> uh, they're, they're doing better. Wow. <laughs> they're doing a lot better uh, with breeding that piece in to bring that. But if you have terrible cyst pressure, the yield that you would give up by having historically a Peking it's going to save you because the cysts are going to kill, kill off your beans. So, I mean, it's a give and take there on that side. And we have the same thing out west uh, with IDC. You know, IDC beans, uh, if they breed that in there, they're also resistant to yield. Uh, but if they don't have it, so, I mean, there's always that catch-22 of what, what are you after. So, um, it, it's just a, a give and take. The, I would say the industry is heavily PI-88, 788. But there's starting to be a few more the peaking pieces come back in on soybean breeding. If they had a big problem but they had the right resistance and maybe rotate to corn, would they expect to have to go to the same resistant beans the next year? It would take multiple years of corn for multiple them years before they went back to beans. They and incidentally, uh, there are a number of host crops, uh, host weeds I should say. You know, you talk about uh, you talk about chickweed, we talk about dead nettle, henbit, field pennycress, uh, shepherd's purse. These are all hosts for soybean cyst nematode. And so a good winter annual weed program helps reduce soybean cyst nematode populations. It can reduce them by 10 to 15% by having, making sure you don't leave those host weeds in there. And that's one of the advantages of a winter using a fall burn down program is to eliminate those weeds. As our listeners are going into July and August, and we're in kind of our last big management window, what things or considerations should they be making right now? 
pray for rain. <laughs> That's for sure. That's the biggest thing. We need rain to not only move nutrition, but also to get the plants growing healthy and start the reproductive stages. One other thing I guess I'll throw out there that, you know, we, we hear a lot about um, different aspects or different philosophies on things to help mitigate stress and help the plant get through those periods. There are some great products out there that they should consider, especially if they're spraying fungicides. We have a product called Yield On. That is a stress mitigation product that is uh, going to help out a lot with reducing stress and allowing sugar movement in the plant, allowing a better zinc and, and boron movement in the plant, and increasing the size of the fruit, increasing the size of the of the corn kernel or of the soybean. And uh, I just think it's a great opportunity for people to utilize if they're spraying fungicides to put the stress mitigation products on like yield on. It's got three different stress mitigation products that come from seaweed extract that comes from the Arctic Ocean. And then there's extracts from poacea, which are grass plants, and chinopoacea, which would be anything in the lamb's quarter or the tall water hemp or pigweed family. They take the extracts out. These are really durable weeds, you know. So they isolate the compounds that make them so durable, and that's what's in this stress mitigation product, along with some nitrogen and some micronutrients. There's two or three other micronutrients in it. So it's a it's got a little bit of micronutrient in it, but it's got stress mitigating compounds. We found a use for water hemp. <laughs> yeah. We could use it on soybean during the reproductive periods for stress mitigation there. We could have used it on wheat if we wanted to, but corn has it's got its biggest benefit. We had 86 plus percent. Yeah. I mean, it might've been 89 uh, win rate on the trials and stuff that we did last year. And in agriculture, if you get over a 60% win rate, it's a big deal. That is probably the single biggest response as we've trialed products in my 21 years of doing this yeah. to have that success rate that we had last year with running that. I can't think of another product that we've trialed and brought out over the years that's had that high of a success rate no. uh, on trials. No, there hasn't been. Yeah, you know, you talk about the pipeline for Winfield United and what they, the pipeline they go down with manufacturers, with major manufacturers and trial and kicking them out, kicking them out, kicking them out, which one. And it's, a couple years ago, it was the only one that made it through the pipeline. Yeah. And so it goes to show you just how it's vetted. That's why we're excited about recommending it. For soybean, once again, we have a, a series, a whole program that we've written for high management corn and high management soybean. And we talk about all the steps and everything. For soybean, there's no question that holistic fungicide insecticide is very, very important. But one of the things that we also will recommend at times is, is to use um, micronutrient systems packets, of course, max and manganese. We recommend a product called Gainer 20-20-20. And then once again, another product that we've recommended over the last number of years is Ascend plant growth regulator to put Ascend foliar applied over soybean at the R2 stage of growth. So there's a lot of things that you can dump in the tank. But um, And for high management soybean growers that are trying to get to the next level, they're, they're asking questions and wanting to look at this. So what we'll do a lot of times is we'll sit down and we'll talk about, if you're not going to use the send, then maybe use the on or vice versa. You know, to, to Troy's point, Jessica and I went up to River Falls where Winfield has their research facility. They have a phenospec, phenotyping or, that they put out. So as Troy said, we test all these biologicals and everything. If a company comes to Winfield and says, test our biological, this is what it does. Like it gets in the plant within 12 hours at this part of the plant. They have the technology now that this machine runs over the, the top and they can tell if it got into the plant where they said they got in the plant at the time that they said they would get into the plant. And then it puts it out on a 3D image on the wall uh, and it'll show you where it went in. So 
if somebody brings a product and says it does this and then they, they continually scan that, if it doesn't do it, it gets kicked out. If it does what they say that it does, then it'll go into field trials and the, the testing of that piece. So it's a long process as these biologicals, more of them uh, continue to hit the industry. The vetting system uh, that it runs through at Winfield before it gets to series is a pretty rigorous process yeah, uh, on that piece. Well, anymore, it's gotten to the point where these companies are all crying, trying to get into Winfield. They're all trying to get in because anymore to do research and get included in the game, to get invited to the show, is tough. And so when you're vetted through Winfield and you pass the test, you're, you're probably feeling pretty good about your day. Series Solutions is also often bombarded with products and other solutions. They take the vetting that these companies do one step further by making them a part of trials throughout their organization. We have a whole program of testing. There are things that we want our folks to look at. Jessica's done a marvelous job for Region 2, for our region, at implementing and getting things sent or administered to our people and keeping good track of it and so we can get some good data off. Lots of yield on this year. Um, mm -hmm. We actually have a lot of trials out. And a lot of guys are kind of skeptical about the product at first, but then they've heard you know, all the success stories and are really interested in learning more about it. So they kind of want to get on their farm and see what it does on their own operation. Um, some other products is Invita is another one. Um, that is a biological, it's a nitrogen-fixing biological. Um, it can go on either corn or soybeans that we're testing on several acres across Region 2. And then the last one would be Nutrition, which is very, very similar to Invita. Well, how it works is that basically um, on the Invita and on the Nutritia, you, you spray it on and it goes in between the cells in the case of Nutritia, and Invita goes in the cells. And what it does is it basically seeks out nitrogen out of the air. The, our air is 78% nitrogen. And so it seeks out the nitrogen and it basically splits the nitrogen bond and converts it over to ammonium, which is then usable by the plant to make proteins. And so it's taking air through the stomates or through the through the cells and converting it into nitrogen. It's really amazing. This is a high energy function. Converting nitrogen through nitrogen fixation is high energy. So there's a lot of demand on the plant at that point. We've used the Invita in furrow, had some okay results with it, but the results look like they're better foliar applied than they are through the use of the starter. So that's our focus, through foliar. So 78% of the atmosphere is, is nitrogen, and then you've got basically uh, like 19% is oxygen, okay? And then like 2 to 3% is, is the sort of gases like carbon dioxide and different, uh, you know, sulfur dioxide, things like that. So when you look at the atmosphere, 78% is a high, high amount of, of the atmosphere is, nit is nitrogen. And then you've got, like I say, that middle of the ground, 20% or so of oxygen and the remainder of miscellaneous gases. So it is virtually impossible to expend the atmosphere of nitrogen. Impossible. Okay? We cannot do it. <laughs> okay. And incidentally, most of that N2 that comes into the atmosphere comes from volcanic eruptions. Is where, where the source where it comes from. Okay. I only know that because I did PowerPoint on it. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I asked Troy and Jessica if they thought there would be a need for late-season nitrogen this year. There's another function that goes along with nitrogen applications. So nitrogen is the leakiest system that we have, that we deal with. And nitrogen loss goes through a lot of different ways, mostly from either denitrification, a waterlogged soil that loses it to gas in the air, like what that happens in Ohio a lot. And here in Indiana, in the sands, we lose it to leaching, okay? Down and just washes it through, okay? So if you don't get huge rain events, 
then the nitrogen is, can be in both the ammonium and nitrate form and it's not going anywhere. It's there for the plant to use. And then there's this. The color of that chair handle right there is black, okay? Very dark black. That would be a high organic matter soil. And that has a lot of natural organic nitrogen in it that goes through what's called mineralization, bacteria, breaking down the nitrogen in the organic matter, releasing it to mineralize nitrogen for the plant. If it starts to rain, that's going to kick loose and that's going to happen. So the net effect is, is that we didn't lose nitrogen and we might get mineralization. We might end up with a net increase in nitrogen per acre. And so the chances of having, unless it starts raining three, four inches at a crack, I don't anticipate we'll run short on nitrogen. Once again, a nitrification inhibitor is great if it starts to rain. If the nitrogen is in the soil, it's both ammonium and nitrate, and the majority of it's in the nitrate form, which is subject to denitrification or leaching, that doesn't matter if it doesn't rain. It doesn't matter because it's going to take a lot of water for the soil to get so soaked that it begins to denitrify or so soaked that it leaches. The nitrogen is where we put it when we put it on for the most part. I did a test the other day. I had to do a test for a field that I'm working with, a, a scenario. And we went out and we did a nitrogen test on it. And we found that we had exactly in the soil what we put on a month or more ago. Well, seven months. Sounds like peace of mind, but also... Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure at this point, are you seeing the crop getting stressed from not being able to access that nitrogen? Oh, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why agronomists will always tell you that when you're... When you're in a nitrogen-rich season under drought, you're always in a better case than a nitrogen-poor scenario. You don't ever want to be nitrogen-poor during a drought, ever. You want to make sure that you got enough nitrogen there where if there is any soil moisture at all, it's getting nitrogen to help it through the drought. The fields that are nitrogen-deficient that are droughty are always worse than those that are nitrogen-rich. We've talked about a lot of things that we can do, and we're in a, right now, we're abnormally dry. And I think you asked the question, are, are people, should they stay the course, should they not stay the course? The ARX warranty piece uh, that Winfield offers. So this is not federal crop insurance. It's a warranty piece above and beyond. If the farmers are already doing certain practices and, you know, should I spray fungicide or not? Ceres can offer a warranty through Winfield back to the grower if they do continue the, the course. And if they apply fungicide, they apply yield on. Um, you know, it ranges from $10 an acre all the way up to $40 an acre on that warranty, de dependent upon what level the, that the growers are, are doing. You know, did they run starter fertilizer? Uh, did they have a sin? Have they done anything with, with micronutrients, uh, the max in products? And then if they follow through and they run a fungicide and, and yield on or uh, anything like that, then you're talking $40 an acre on a warranty piece. If they skipped all that piece, but they're still looking at maybe running a fungicide, then, you know, it's at 10 bucks an acre uh, or 15, you know, it varies by different fungicides. There's just an additional piece of mind above and beyond what they have from federal crop insurance. So federal crop insurance is for disasters. If it doesn't rain and they have a federal crop insurance claim, they don't get a bill for, for running it. There's no, it just goes away. Um, or if it turns off dry and they don't apply fungicide, I mean, if it's to the point that they're like, look, my crop's done, I'm not going to put fungicide on, again, they won't get a bill for that. There's no, no payment there uh, on that piece. But, you know, if they're 85% of their normal APH yield, all the way up to some of that goes up to 105% is what the warranty is, then, you know, they can get a 
a pretty substantial payment per acre mm -hmm. uh, if they fall below that 105% of their APH yield for, for those farms um, all the way down until there would be a federal crop insurance claim. So there is some, I guess, risk mitigation, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. uh, opportunities out there that, you know, farmers inherently have to be optimistic to be, to be farmers. So if the optimism is still there, uh, if the weather forecast, you know, Troy said a few times that they're starting to add more rain. I think we're switching from a La Nina cycle to El Nino mm -hmm. cycle. So as that transition happens, it should turn wetter. So the, the crops that have held on, we maybe have lost some top end, but it just gives that risk reassurance that look, fungicide is still the right thing to do here. Right. If, and if by chance it wasn't the right thing to do, there is some warranty money that can be available to the growers out there on, on that side. Any deadlines or registration times they should know about? July 31st. So all fields have to be enrolled by July 31st, which by then we will have applied, made the decision, are we going to do fungicide or are we not going to do fungicide? You know, I say July 31st, it's probably more like July 10th or 12th because you have to do the paperwork and, and fill that stuff out. If you wait till July 31st, that's the last day. I mean, ultimately, I, I would say if we can get that July 15th as the deadline, for signing up that stuff, uh, that would be optimal. What happened from last year on guys who signed up to this year that signed up is their APH has actually went up because APH looks at the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. 10 years before 2022 is 2012. So that was their, their kickout year was 2012 was the year that they threw out. So now 2012 is off their list. So now they're picking a 2015 or 14, whatever, another year in there that was below normal yields, and that's their kick out. So their overall APH is going up, and that warranty is 105% of that. So, uh, you know, I was talking with Andrew Mitchell. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a grower. His now, uh, he's got a field of corn. His approved with 105% would be 266, Ooh. is what he's guaranteed. So if that field doesn't make 266, he would get a $40 anchor man. If you signed up on, on the top side, so yeah, I mean that's <laughs> and the odds of us hitting two sixty six right now mm -hmm. aren't aren't the greatest, but it's all or none. So if they're if they miss it by a bushel, it oh. pays. If they miss it by ten bushel, it's the same payment. So uh, it's not like prorated down. It's either you made one hundred and five or one hundred and six percent, or you fell below one hundred and five percent and you carry. Yieldon is Vallegro's biostimulant technology made specifically for row crops. Yieldon increases the movement of key nutrients including nitrogen, phosphorus, zinc, and iron critical to late season plant growth and triggers the flow of sugar into developing seeds. This activity means that more energy is captured where it counts in the seed, in the combine, and on the scale ticket. Apply yield on this season to finish crops strong and produce more yield per acre. Contact your local Series Solutions agronomist to learn how you can include yield on as a tank mix partner with your fungicide application. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Field Points. And thank you to Troy and Jessica for joining us in those last two episodes, sharing what you have seen in the 2023 growing season and the cropping considerations that growers can be making today to finish out the season. In our next episode, we will be talking about the IoT Innovation Hub. 
I'm excited to share the technology and the approach with Abby Anspaugh next week. The show notes for this episode will be available at series.coop. That's C-E-R-E-S dot C-O-O-P. If you enjoyed this deeper dive, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Your review and feedback will help other listeners like you find our podcast, and we are so thankful for that. 